welcome to Our Parents Did What? A tour of the parenting perils of yesteryear. I'm Diane Aragona. And I'm your co-host, Jen Tierney. Join us as we travel back in time to take a look at the sometimes unbelievable history of parenting. Hey, Diane. Hello, Jen. How are you? I'm super good today. <laughs> oh, good. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I've just sort of given in to the reality that we're in at this point where like I see my children and they see me all day, every day, and nothing ever changes very much. And life is sort of a, a series of uh, like moments that aren't really all that different from one another. <laughs> right now yeah. it's just yeah. it's all sort of like this funny little you know series of nothingness and <laughs> so. it's it's funny because the last time we talked on our last episode I was um very much upbeat about our quarantine and I can't mm-hmm. say that I'm feeling exactly the same right now yeah yeah I feel like it, it every week has had a different flavor you know this week yeah. is like okay this is getting boring <laughs> For me, at least. <laughs> yeah. It, it goes from like um, feeling really happy that I'm spending all this time with my daughter at this like pivotal point in her life when she's learning so much to like crying into my ice cream or wine at the end of the night. I can't decide. <laughs> I've been I've been drinking a lot more wine than usual. It is. Yeah. I'm not proud of it. <laughs> no. I mean, but it's the same like – with before she she was just whining she wouldn't stop whining and and I don't know she's teething she's one she's just everything she's got an opinion now and I just I was finally like fine let's put I call them her stories it's YouTube (laughs) I'm like all right and I just put on YouTube and I was just because I can't I can't deal anymore (laughs) I'm tired yeah I mean you got every right to be lady you have a particular mom moment you'd like to share? <laughs> I do. I do. My entire week last week. Oh. <laughs> because it was just, I, it was like a never ending series of horrible mom moment nightmares that I wasn't expecting and then like couldn't escape from. So on Saturday of last week, my daughter was like, mommy, my tummy hurts. And she is five. And you were complaining about Rini whining. My daughter (laughs) still whines and she's five and it never stops. It is all the time. And so I have been home with her for, you know, four straight weeks. And I was just like, I don't, I don't care. I don't care that your stomach hurts. Eat your lunch. I don't want to hear you complain about anything. I'm done. I'm done don't talk to me. Go use your big girl voice or go into your room. Can't take it anymore. And she was just like, oh, it really hurts. And I was like, stop, cut it out. Just, you know, and I'm like really not being very kind to her at all at this point. And, and so she eats like a little bit of food and then she throws up and she proceeds to throw up every 30 minutes for the next 12 hours. And I was like, oh my God, what is wrong with her? Does she have food poisoning? Like what happened? Oh no. She's like clutching yeah. her belly. She doesn't know. She's like in so much pain. And it dawns on me at like 9, 10 PM. Oh my God. She has appendicitis. That must be what this is. How did you even think of that? Because like, like I never had appendicitis, so I don't know exactly what it feels like. Yeah. I'd 
I never had it either, and I don't really know anyone personally who's had it, um, or at least, like, not that they've told me about it, because um, it usually happens when you're a kid, and it's not something that, like, grown-up people tell each other about. So, yeah, I didn't really know, but she kept on, like, telling me that her stomach really hurt, but she was holding really low. She wasn't holding up high where her stomach actually is, and so I was like, she's in so much pain she can't stand up straight. It's something that's not just like food poisoning because that doesn't that doesn't make you throw up constantly and you know so I was just like something is really wrong um I looked up appendicitis and like she had every everything matched and I told Joe and he was like it's not there's no way it's appendicitis and I was like yeah you're probably right so then I called like the 24-hour nurse hotline and they were like it's probably not appendicitis and I was like yeah you're right okay and so like the next morning I called the pediatrician like you can't actually see see anyone right now you know so like I telehealth with the pediatrician and she's like it's probably not but if she's in that much pain that she can't stand up you should take her into the ER and just have them check so I bring her to the ER in the middle of a pandemic. <laughs> yeah, in the middle of a pandemic, I bring her to the ER. Luckily, the pediatrician called ahead and was like, there's a small child coming in who might have appendicitis. Please, like, bring her straight through. So we didn't have to actually wait in the ER. We just, oh, like, went straight great. in. And the hospital was pretty quiet anyway because, like, everybody's home. Nobody wants to be at a hospital right now. So, like, yeah. if you have anything right now that isn't, like, life-threatening, you're not going to the hospital. So it was pretty quiet. And we went in. And, and they were like, oh, she's probably just constipated. When's the last time she pooped? And I was just like, if uh, like, I swear to God, if this child's constipated, I'm going to lose my ever-loving mind. And so they bring her in to have an ultrasound and they were like, well, we're not sure. We're going to send it to a radiologist or we're going to send it to this person and that person. And they were like, okay, well, we'll send her in for an x-ray. And they, so they're doing all these tests and she's got an IV and it's like this whole hullabaloo. And they were like, we can't really tell. We're not positive. We're going to ch- send you to Children's Hospital, which is like a big deal. <laughs> it's oh, like, no. You know, it's like... We don't feel comfortable treating her here. We're going to send you to a specific pediatric hospital for this. And we're like, okay, fine. So we go down there and it's like 2 p.m. now. We've been at a hospital since 9 a.m. And I'm just like, I haven't eaten anything. The night before I was up until 3 a.m. with her puking. So like, we're a mess. I ha- I didn't bring anything with me because I thought it was going to be in and out, you know. And so finally a doctor comes in and is like, oh, she has acute appendicitis. Her appendix has ruptured. We need to put her into surgery immediately. <gasps> So then all of a sudden she's having abdominal surgery and everyone around me is in hazmat suits because we're in the middle of a pandemic and it was just bonkers. And so, so we are in the hospital and she wakes up and she's like, I've never seen something funnier than a five-year-old who is like completely stoned. It was, <laughs> it was really fun. I took some videos of her talking to me. It was just, it was too funny. I just could I it was too funny. I would kind uh, of like to see those. I won't show them to oh anyone God. else. <laughs> she's like at one point she's like she had just woken up and she kind of looked down at her stomach and she was like my my belly button. They what what did they do to my belly button? Cuz that's like where they made the one of the incisions <laughs> and she was like it doesn't it doesn't look like my belly button anymore. <laughs> <laughs> It was so sad. And I was like, oh, my God, you're so you're just like super drunk. <laughs> so, so it was very funny. And then it was just like one thing after another. 
and we were there for like five days because she yeah, like didn't you were there for a long yeah, we time. were there a really long time like usually it's like two days maybe after you have your appendix out but she just her body didn't like wake up all the way after the anesthesia i don't know it's crazy so then we finally went home and she is now like fully recovered and back to being a complete terror Oh my god! I knew she had appendicitis. <laughs> I didn't know the whole story. So, well, wow. yeah, it was, it was really intense and crazy. And I just now, how uh, was she? Like, how do you explain to a five-year-old? Okay, you're about to be rushed into surgery. To major surgery. Uh, so, luckily, they because we were at Children's, they have specific people on staff who just explain surgery to children. And I was like, great. Excellent. Oh, wow. You come in and tell her about this. Because I was – so I sat down with her and I was like, hey, Emma, so you know how your tummy hurts. So we're going to have to – we're going to have to go – the doctor's going to go and fix what's wrong in your tummy. But before he does that, he's going to give you some special medicine that's going to make you sleepy. And I thought that was going to be comforting to her. No, Diane. Oh, That no. was the scariest thing I could have said. She was like – I don't want to go to sleep. What if I never wake up? Don't make me go to sleep, mom. It was oh awful. God. I oh was like, God. I can't, I can't, I can't, I can't, I can't. <laughs> it was awful. It was awful. Um, and at the same time, obviously, had there not been a pandemic, Joe's parents probably would have come up to watch the boys. So Joe could have been yeah. with me. Like, it was just, it was unlike it, we would have experienced it had this not happened in the middle of COVID. It was a singularly unique experience that I hope I never have to repeat in any similar fashion. <laughs> oh, my God. So, yeah, it was really wild. Thank goodness you caught it in time, though, and she's back to her normal self. I mean, that's scary. It was really nuts. Wow. <laughs> so I'm sure your mom moment was hopefully not nearly as traumatic as mine. <laughs> not nearly as traumatic and fairly short. My best friend got us for my daughter's birthday, although it was really a present to me. Um, she got her other stuff too, but she got um, uh, like a pop-up playpen oh, yeah. that like really quickly pops up and, and it's a very easy and lightweight to put up and take down. And she tolerates it fairly well for mm -hmm. short spurts of time. I mean, even up to like 20 minutes sometimes. Oh, that's great. And, and sometimes it'll be like 10 minutes and then she needs a little attention and then she can mm -hmm. go back in. But it's been enough time that I have been able for the first time since I was pregnant to start working out again. <gasps> oh my goodness. Yeah. Because I wow. can do a quick 20 minute like hit workout yeah. or like, you know, strength training or something. Yeah. And she will stay fairly silent and for the last like five minutes she's like clutching the mesh and like crying <gasps> for me but you know for the most part she's fine and it's also like of course I feel bad that she's crying but I'm also like you're fine yeah <laughs> you're fine yeah. when you get to that point as a mom where you're like I've done everything for you I've gone in I've soothed you I've provided you with a safe place I've fed you I've changed you you are fine when you can get to that place where you can say you're fine i really feel it's just so freeing <laughs> well i have to get there when she's in her crib at night mm -hmm. but but for for the 20 minutes in her playpen during the day mm -hmm. or the half hour so far so good yes so i'm i'm, yeah. I'm proud of her and i'm proud of me so good for you yeah. that's great Okay, 
should, should we uh, dive in? Yes. Let's talk about your, your mystery topic of the day. So this is going to be a bit of a doozy, but um, I was going to hone in on a more specific part of this topic, but then I was actually so interested in like the broad overview and where it takes us to today that I'm just not going to go super into detail about certain things that we may want to devote a whole episode to at some point. Okay. But I am going to go over the history of, drum roll, (laughs) uh, parenting advice books <gasps> and as like uh like the whole billion dollar industry oh my goodness phenomenal <laughs> i'm so excited so as we know parents spend hundreds of billions of dollars on parenting advice books i myself have spent money on parenting advice books most of the time once i read them i am more confused than when i started <laughs> websites of parenting advice, blogs of parenting advice. It's all kind of the same industry. People make a living out of blogging about the right way to parent. So where did this all come from? I was surprised, sort of surprised to find that uh, this stretches way, way back uh, into the 1600s. Oh, here we go. All right. Um, The English, the English poet, John Wilmot, who was born in 1647, gave this great quote that I thought, was so true. This is how we're going to kick it off. He said, before I married, I had six theories about bringing up children. Now I have six children and no theories. <laughs> <laughs> oh, <laughs> my goodness. Like, tickled me. <laughs> like, yeah. That is so true. And it I is. think about all the things that that my husband and I would be like, oh, when we're parents, we're not going to do this. And when we're parents, we're going to. Oh, my God, was I wrong? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, uh, you know, we're going to start around the dawn of the Age of Enlightenment, and we are going to talk about one of your favorite people, Jen. <gasps> John Locke? Yep. Yeah! <laughs> he pops up again! Yes, he's very instrumental in child-rearing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> in 1693, John Locke wrote Some Thoughts Concerning Education. You got into some of that when you did um, your toy episode. Mm-hmm. So we're not really going to get into that, but we are going to talk about his views on child rearing. He emphasized mostly the role of parents in raising what he considered to be virtuous children, Mm. which meant children with (laughs) self-restraint. I don't, I feel like those two things are morons. Like, like you, what self-restraint child, like that's not a thing. No. Uh, He was against rewards like candy for good behavior. But surprisingly for his time, he was against corporal punishment and spoke out against it. Oh, all right, John Locke. Oh, John Locke. All right. That we agree with. (laughs) He was the first person to put out uh, something written, an essay on uh, how you should parent, which we'll get into it later. But parent as a verb was not a thing yet. Mm -hmm. So from the beginning, it's nature versus nurture permissive versus authoritarian helicopter versus free range. They don't have those words yet, but like from the 1600s, 1700s, like it's always been the same, which I thought was really funny. Locke thought children were blank slates. Then in France, there was Rousseau. He thought that humans were born innately good. Society and civilization makes you bad. Mm -hmm. (laughs) He wrote that in his book on education in 1762. So again, it's just that nature versus nurture that just 
keeps coming back to today. Yes. Yeah. Advice for parents became widespread in literature in the mid 1700s into the 1800s. But now we have physicians leading the charge of telling us how we should parent. Primarily male physicians telling women how to mother. Yeah. (laughs) Which is my favorite thing. We'll see a lot of that. Mm -hmm. So we have uh, 1749, William, I don't know if I'm saying his name right, William Cadigan wrote the essay on nursing. Oh, gosh, because he's such a pro on nursing. (laughs) Right? Oh, gosh. Uh, And then in 1804, we have another William. William Buchanan wrote Advice to Mothers, Hmm. (laughs) which apparently had many American editions. So women were actually like taking this advice from these men. Yeah. Which blows my mind but i guess if you had nothing else yeah i mean if the options that you had for trying to figure out how to take care of these confounding things that suddenly you need to be the care of right and and all of the options out there were made by men then that's what you're gonna read it's awful (laughs) it is awful (laughs) it's awful and like and it's sad i don't know but anyway Uh, There are some really interesting things that crop up in these advice books from physicians in the 1800s. We have a book called The Maternal Physician, who was pro-breastfeeding in that book, which is good, but also pro-cold baths. (laughs) Just dunk your baby in some cold water. It's fine. It's good for the lungs. (laughs) Let him scream. Puffing him up a little bit. And then we have the book, which I enjoy, not advice to mothers. This one's called advice to a wife, Ah. Uh (laughs) which recommended that you stop nursing by six months old, but was at least anti-cold baths. So apparently cold baths was like a big thing. Oh, boy. (laughs) Advice to a wife also answered the age old question. Should you wash your baby's head with brandy? What was the answer, Diane? The answer, surprisingly, was no. Why waste good brandy? I think they wrote, um, no, it is sure to cause a cold rather than prevent one. Oh, my word. (laughs) I don't understand. Like, uh, the cause of a cold is germs. Come on. (laughs) Yeah, but germ theory. I think we're still a ways away from germ theory. I know. It's so crazy. (laughs) I know. It is so bad. I have a few... um, Childcare, and I'm going to say this with air quotes, experts um, that throughout history have had a big influence on child rearing and parenting. So I'm going to kind of pepper them in as we go. Sure. Um, so we're we're in the 1800s now. So we are going to talk about um, Truby King. Okay. Who I had never heard of. So Sir Frederick Truby King was New Zealand's director of child welfare. He was born in 1858. He died in 1939. Um, but he was the founder of New Zealand's Plunkett Society, which uh, its mission statement was to help babies and mothers. And it was aimed at improving hygiene, health, and child-rearing practices, which sounds great. Yeah, it sounds really great. So that means you know it's going to be real bad. Yeah, I do. <laughs> Well, there was some good. Um, His research led to radical improvements in childhood nutrition, especially in New Zealand, which is great. Um, So then there's the weird, which is that uh, he was a fan of enforcement parenting is what they called it. So he believed you should feed babies every few hours by the clock. Absolutely no overnight feeds. And in fact, you should absolutely ignore your baby if they are crying overnight and do not feed them. Oh, my gosh. 
poor babies. He went further and he said, you should leave babies alone in the garden for prolonged periods of time to toughen them up. Oh, no. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Just leave them out there. Uh-huh. It's fine. Just leave them. <laughs> Get some fresh air. And then probably my favorite one is he imposed a 10-minute-a-day time limit on cuddling. <gasps> oh, 10 minutes. That's so rough. I'm so glad we know better. <laughs> I know. I know. There's a lot of that. But then I also sit there and think, like, what are they What are they going to look at, like, 40, 50 years from now that we're doing? But who knows? So then there's the really bad. He was a eugenics fan. Of course, yes. <laughs> and uh, Yeah, which I'm not surprised. And he had little actual experience or any data to back up any of his claims about, you know, leaving babies in the garden to rot. <laughs> I mean – the little bit of research I've done into people like this charming individual is like they usually don't have a lot of good evidence because the, because research really isn't like where it is today, where, you know, we have strict guidelines on how to perform good research. Like they, they just came up with right. theories and were like, this is what I think. Yeah. Or like they saw one baby one time that lived and they were like, this is what we all have to do. It works. Do it. Right. <laughs> no. <laughs> No, don't do it. Oh, my gosh. Mm -hmm. So I guess in a good way, as we get further along in time and um, we start to learn a little bit more and research does become a little more defined, childhood becomes increasingly viewed as sacred and precious. And uh, we get a little bit less of that, like, leave your baby out in the garden stuff. But parents' concerns, more importantly, become less about basic needs and survival and more about, like, mental development and behavior. And we get a little bit more concerned with how our day-to-day actions will forever shape our child's life, Yes, which is a very big distinction between the way we think of parenting now as a day-to-day job mm-hmm. and the way they thought of it in the past as just, this is my child. And you know, as long as they live to adulthood, yeah, great. I've succeeded. <laughs> So this is the shift comes in uh, probably right before the 20th century. We start to get these different ideas cropping up. So in the early 20th century, we get the science movement for parenting advice. Um, But scientific doesn't always mean good yet. In 1894, uh, Dr. L. Emmett Holt's book, The Care and Feeding of Children, told mothers to strictly schedule a child's bowel movements to two a day. (laughs) How do you even do that? <laughs> it's like stick a finger up there like nope Diane what's great about this is that it's it's really this unintended or possibly intended way to orchestrate the forever feeling of failure in women yes like, you can't possibly achieve this thing that I'm explaining in my book of hua, and, mm-hmm. and and you will feel badly about your failure as a mother. Yes. And I can't remember if it was Truby King or one of the other people. They said that incidences of like, you know, any types of um, deformities or, you know, developmental issues that a baby is born with, he wrote... 99 times out of 100 is due to the mother's negligence or like, uh, you know, being bad while she was pregnant. And I was like, oh, my God. (sighs) Yeah. Thanks, men. That's a story for another day. Mm -hmm. (laughs) But anyway, I don't know how you can schedule a child's bowel movements. I don't think that's possible. (laughs) I don't know. 
Um, he also said not to kiss your children and to ignore them crying. We get a lot of ignore their crying. Oh, yes. This book influenced John B. Watson's 1928 book, Psychological Care of Infant and Child, where he instructed mothers never to hug or kiss your children or let them sit in your lap. Yes, that's right. <laughs> Don't let them do any of that stuff. Don't let them do any of that stuff. It'll ruin them forever. Yes. It's true. So by, by the early 1900s, we finally get some information from a government agency and not just from physicians or preachers. So in 1914, we get the infant care pamphlet from the U.S. Children's Bureau, which reached tens of millions of people. So finally, we're getting something that's widespread that a lot of parents have access to. And clearly there was a need for it because the Bureau received 125,000 letters a year from mothers looking for advice and help on raising their children. That's nuts. In 1918, just four years later, the word parenting is used as a verb for the first time in the Oxford English Dictionary. So uh, in written use, the word parenting as a verb did not overtake the word childbearing until like the mid-1970s. And coincidentally, as soon as parenting became popular in use, so did overparenting. <laughs> <laughs> you can't just do it right. You've got no. to screw it up one way or another. We can't win. No. We can't win. Mm -mm. So, so once we get into the mid-1900s, we get to one of our favorite people who gives advice on parenting, our, one of our favorite physicians. Do you want to guess? I feel like the obvious answer is Dr. Spock. You guessed it. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Dr. Spock. Oh, yeah. So so let's talk very briefly about Dr. Spock. Like, I mean, I know there's so much information on him, so I'm not going to say everything. But he was a pediatrician born in 1903, and he wrote the Common Sense Book of Baby and Child Care, which is one of the best-selling books of all time. Oh, yes. It sold 50 million copies since it was first published in 1946. Only one book has ever outsold it. Do you know what that book was? I mean, it's got to be the Bible, right? It's the Bible. It's the Bible. <laughs> <laughs> so basically, he wrote the Bible of child care. Mm -hmm. <laughs> wow. That's nuts. I didn't realize that like his book is still... Wow. Yeah. That's nuts. 50 million copies. Yeah. So Dr. Spock's motto, I guess, was to mothers, you know more than you think. Oh. Which is a nice thing. Yeah. 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 He challenged a lot of that authoritarian and stoic parenting advice from the early 20th century and went for a more gentle approach. Oh. Way to go, Spock. Right. He encouraged affection. He said parents should trust their own instincts and judgment. And he felt that mothers were too hard on themselves and that um, innately they would they would usually know the right thing to do. And he was anti-giving like explicit instructions. Oh, wow. I know. And, and I did a quick Google search because I was like, all right, every single person I've searched so far, like they sound good at first glance. But then you do like a Google search and you find all these articles of how bad they were. And I couldn't really find much like really bad stuff about him. So yeah, he seems like he was just sort of like a pretty nice, gentle guy. Yeah. He wrote that book in 1946, but the ideas didn't really become mainstream until the 60s. Yeah. When you think about it, it makes sense because mothers started to have more like modern conveniences around then. Like I'm trying to remember from your diaper episode when disposable diapers became more widely available, but I think it was the 60s. 
I was going to say it was probably the 60s or the 70s. So mothers were doing less laundry and other things around the house. You know, they had all these different new modern appliances. So they were able to actually like bond with and enjoy their babies a little bit more. So it would make sense that you would change your approach to parenting because you have more time to spend with your baby. So we all, we all know about Spock, but I didn't know about Dr. Donald Winnicott. Did you know about him? I've never heard of this person. Yeah. So um, I want to preface this by saying I found a couple of these people on the BBC website. So a few of them are English, which may be why we don't know them as well. But Dr. Winnicott is basically the English Spock from Mm -hmm. what I read. Excellent. He was born in 1896, but he was influential around the same time that Spock was. He was very prominent in the world of developmental psychology. And he ran a very successful um, broadcast for the BBC over the course of 20 years, um, starting around 1943, aimed directly at mothers. And uh, it was right around the time when Spock's book was gaining popularity in the United States in the 40s, 50s, 60s. He coined the term, and I love this term, the good enough mother. (gasps) Oh, Yeah. I feel like just about every day I'm the good enough mother. (laughs) Yeah. And he believed that a good enough mother with flaws is exactly what your baby needs because your flaws are actually teaching your baby to learn or teaching your child, I should say, to learn patience and to learn that people in the world are not perfect and uh, to kind of help them with their development that it's okay if you make mistakes. Yeah. Oh, man. Like this guy. I was, he really, like Spock, believed in trusting your instincts and he was anti any like regimented routines, like strict schedules. As I mean, everybody has their own way of parenting and I'm not going to knock whatever works for you, but I try to like really schedule things. Never worked for my baby. I think what, what we'll come to the conclusion of at the end of this is that parenting books are great and it's good to get different perspectives, but every parent is searching for the elusive right answer, like to, to fix something. And it's just, it doesn't exist because every baby is different. Yeah. There's no one size fits all to parenting advice. There's get all the advice you can and then try to cobble together the version that works for your kid (laughs) at that specific moment in time, (laughs) because give it a week, they'll change. So now we're going to talk about another, there are a few people on this list that I had not heard of. So it was interesting to do this research. Um, A psychologist called Penelope Leach. Okay. Um, She was very popular in the 70s and 80s. She wrote the book, Your Baby and Child, From Birth to Age Five. Awesome. (laughs) So yeah, it was published in 1977 and it was, it was, the start of the child-centered parenting approach, which uh, focused on mothers giving, making sacrifices mm. so that their child will have the best life. Oh my goodness. <laughs> yes. So she was very much, she was also, I don't know if you'd call it the start of like the na- the back to like natural parenting movement where it's like, it's going away from the more scientific sterile approaches to like, you should if you know you should breastfeed and you should sleep next to your baby and you should hold them and never put them down and never let them cry and yeah. i'm not saying that any of this is wrong i'm just you know i think that that this is where things started to shift um she was extremely anti cry it out mhm she's well loved by some and well respected 
for her research, but a lot of people say she is legendary for making moms feel guilty. Mm. Because you have that, if you have that child-centered approach that you should be kind of catering to every whim of your child, and if you're not, you're a bad mother. Yeah. You're bound to fail. Yeah. Yeah. You're bound to fail. Yeah. So we're finally into the 80s, uh, where parenting advice moves to in utero. And in 1984, we get the most famous, I guess, pre-parenting book, What to Expect When You're Expecting. Oh, yes. (laughs) (laughs) Which, surprisingly enough, like, now I loved my doctors when I gave birth, but when I was first pregnant, and I, I had three doctors in my practice, and I liked some of them more than others, but when I went to one of my first appointments, I said to one of the doctors, what pregnancy book do you think I should get? Thinking there would be like some new one or like she'd give me. And she told me to get what to expect when you're expecting. Mine too. And I was kind of surprised. Yeah. Yes. I was surprised too. I was like, I, there's got to be something better. And I did. I was able to find like what I felt was like the better, more modern approach to that book. It was called... I think it was called Pee in a Pod, um, and it was written by a, a nurse midwife. It covered the exact same topics, but just did it in a way that was just so much more palatable. <laughs> right. So, yeah. Yeah. Uh, what to expect when you're expecting had too many, like, I don't know how to, because I did get it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, me too. I don't know. It, it just had a weird tone. I can't describe it. Yeah. It had all these moments where I I literally, like, looked at the book and went, whoa. Yeah. What? <laughs> And it didn't make me feel better about I remember I like skipped right to like the giving birth chapter because yeah. I was like, all right, that's kind of like all I care about. And it just made me way more terrified. It did. I know. That's exactly how I felt about it. I, I remember that exact same experience, just going to the giving birth section and being like, what? Just like, because it was so like, it doesn't pull any punches. It is just like, this is what happens to your body. And then maybe you'll need an episiotomy. Like, it was just awful. Yes, the episiotomy. Okay. This is again, (laughs) maybe we need to do a whole thing on what to expect when you're expecting, but. I think so. Oh my God. Oh my God. So bad. But, but, (sighs) but it's still in wide circulation and it is the most commonly referred uh, book for pregnant women in the United States, which is like shocking. I know. I know. It's wild. It is wild. So parents today are the ideal market for advice books. Oh, yes, we are. (laughs) Mm -hmm. We are overworked. We are overstressed. We have reduced um, extended family support because we all move away from each other. You know, we have uh, media that is driven by clicks. So we have big like clickbait headlines that are driven by fear and they want you to click on it. So yeah, they're trying to fuel your emotions. Um, we always feel as parents today, because we are stretched so thin, that there is something we can be doing better. And so there must be a book out there that can tell us how we can kind of juggle it all and make sure that our child has the highest IQ and the highest test scores and goes to an Ivy League school and, you know, yeah, all of that stuff. <laughs> So the the last uh, child care expert that we are going to talk about is uh, one that I actually used to really enjoy. And mm-hmm. now looking back on it, I'm not so sure I feel the same way. <laughs> and that is Joe Frost, Super Nanny. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh, my goodness. I forgot about her. I used to watch Super Nanny. Me too. <laughs> Before I had any children. <laughs> so she is famous for coining the naughty step. I mean, it's basically time out. Yeah. But... 
but you have to sit on a step. You have to sit there one minute for every year of age. So if you're six, you sit there for six minutes. If you're seven, it's seven minutes. And then I think in order to get off of the naughty step, you have to like go and apologize and give a hug. That was like the big thing. People thought it was great. It was kind of a little, it was a, it was a return to a little bit more discipline centered parenting, but like not corporal punishment. Some people really liked it. I used to think it was really like, I was like, she's a genius. She makes the children listen. But she was later criticized for mom shaming and parent shaming because she would often go into like working class homes and like talk down to these people who are probably like just trying to get by. And then she would just like swoop in and make it better and tell the parents all the things they're doing wrong. Oh, yeah. So I now I see it differently. And she also has been criticized for invading children's privacy. Yeah. The final thing that takes us into today is this whole time it's been so centered on mothers, what mothers are doing wrong. Um, but now in today's day and age, when dads are taking more of an active role, we finally have parenting books geared toward dads. <laughs> Although they are usually rife with frat boy jokes and fart jokes and beer gut jokes. And they're really devoid of a lot of information, like actual information. Yeah. Like I remember I got Chuck the book, dude, you're going to be a dad when I was pregnant, just because I thought that the title was really funny. And then he opened the book and started reading it. And like the first chapter or so he was like chuckling. And then he was like, I can't read this. I can't take this seriously. Yeah. This is written by somebody who like, I don't remember how he described it, but he he essentially was like, it's written by by a, a kind of guy that I am not. Like, yeah, yep. <laughs> Just like a dude bro. Yeah, <laughs> and he could not finish it. Yeah, yeah. I've I've paged through a number of the uh, parenting books for dads, and they're just like, this doesn't come naturally to you, but you'll be fine. <laughs> it's a lot of like, just real, real silly. My favorite parenting book for dads, which isn't necessarily for dads, but I think is a book that like more often is is purchased for dads than for moms is experimenting with babies. It's a great I've book. I've never even heard of it's it. It's so fantastic. It's basically like it gives you all of these actual scientific experiments that you can do on your child because of like reflexes that they have at certain ages or things that like all children will do given a certain set of stimuli and it's really funny it's like it's just great i really enjoyed it i registered for it because i'm a huge nerd but i think it's more geared towards men because because men often are told i don't necessarily think that this is true but the message that i think that they get is that until their child is more active they're not going to be able to bond with it because they won't be able to do anything with it Right. And so this experimenting with babies book is very much like your baby might not be able to do anything yet, but you can do stuff to your baby <laughs> um, so, so that like you as a dad can like bond with your baby. <laughs> it's so, so yeah. it's so funny how society has trained us to, to think a certain way about child rearing. But now anyway, I, I think I'm done. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think that was everything. <laughs> When I was doing my research, I found a really great blog article that just like made me feel better. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so 
It was from uh, The Guardian, and it was called The Diabolical Genius of the Baby Advice Industry. Oh, that sounds great. <laughs> yeah, and it's it's written by a dad, and it and he's ju- he just talks about, like, you know, when his, I think it was son, when his son was born, and, you know, going through, you know, frantically ordering, you know, parenting books on Amazon and Google searching things in the middle of the night and, you know, preparing for things that the books told you would definitely happen. And then they never happened for his kid and, and and how he just kind of took away from it that like, you're not going to like mess up your kid if you don't do, you know, exactly what this book says or what this blog article says. And your kid is probably going to be okay, regardless of the day-to-day things that you do. Mm -hmm. And then this isn't from that article, but I think we talk so much in the Western world on our baby forums and our books about like the right organic formula and the right organic baby food. And, you know, what preschool should your kid go to when really what we should be talking about are the government programs that would be helping children who come from lower socioeconomic statuses, government programs that would help them in the grand scheme of things to even the playing field. Because really like picking the right organic formula is not going to be the thing that helps your child. The reason you can pick that organic formula is because you are of a higher, you know, status or you are wealthier and you're able to worry about those things when some people are just worried about how they're going to feed their kid in general. Yeah, exactly. You and I are in complete agreement. (laughs) (laughs) What I will say is the only parenting book I am hoping to ever buy again is one that I've actually heard from numerous people works and including you. Yeah. Uh, I am going to buy that. Oh crap. Potty oh crap. Training potty training. Book. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, although I have to, I have to say it's great. And I do think that if you follow her method that it will work. However, I also think that had I used her method on Joey when he was the age that she like requires him to be for her book to work, I still don't think it would have worked on him. Mm. I still think that it's one of those like weird cop outs where they're like, this will work on every child. And if it doesn't work on your child, it's because you are doing something wrong. And and that's something that I think we all have to be careful about when we read books like that. Mm-hmm. So I like it and I think I think it's very funny and I think it's approachable and I think that her methods probably work for the majority of kids but you know your kid best and if you read her book and you go this is not going to work for my child then don't bother with it. <laughs> Find something yeah. that works for you. <laughs> I wonder if I can get it from the library. Oh yeah, you probably can. I got mine from the library. But it's a good read. That's the thing is parenting advice books I think are usually really interesting reads. So like, even if you don't utilize the stuff in it, you can probably at least learn a little something and take it and, you know, pepper it into your own parenting style. Yeah. So that is going to take us to the end of our episode. If you have any ideas for future episodes or mom moments or dad moments or any other kind of moment you would like to share with us you can get in touch with us on facebook or twitter or instagram we're all over the place are we on twitter maybe we're not we are on twitter (laughs) but i just suck at twitter (laughs) so we're on all of the social media we do have a twitter i just don't update it as much as all the other social media platforms that's That's, that's a diane problem it's not a it's not an opdw problem (laughs) 
<laughs> so, so yeah, so you can look for us. Uh, we're usually at OPDW Podcast. And then we have an email address that you are welcome to send us emails at, which is opdwpodcast at gmail.com. Our music is by Theo Rosenberg. So thank you, Theo. Thanks, Theo. So Diane, until next time. Don't wash your baby's head in brandy. <laughs> oh my gosh. Oh my gosh.